1: Make your second half of life even better than the first. Everywhere we look these days, we're bombarded by talk, social media, TV news, opinion shows, podcasts, blogs, emails, texts. And yet, we're living in an age where social isolation and loneliness are on the rise, leading to what many call an epidemic. Many Americans report feeling lonely, with prevalence especially high among those under 25 and over 65 years old. While this alarming trend has grown, so has the understanding and evidence of its impact social connection significantly affects the health of all of us in today's episode casley killam a leading expert in social isolation and loneliness talks about the need to go beyond our traditional thinking that physical and mental health are all that matter there's a third dimension to well-being casley points out and it's related to social health the dimension to well-being that comes from our relationships our connection and community casley the founder of social health labs will explain over the over a decade of studying sharing and applying the science of human connection has led her to elevate the idea of social health to help individuals, organizations, and communities become more socially healthy. She'll describe the evolution of many components of social health, such as the role of healthy community design and significantly addressing major societal problems. Kazi will describe an array of compelling programs and initiatives, such as connect conversations and event series created by social health labs and the Foundation for Social Connection that convened 26 experts and over 2,500 community members from 55 countries. And not only will Casley explain why all this matters, she will offer steps for each of us, for us each to take to strengthen our social help in our day-to-day life. So now let's meet our guest, Casley Killam. Casley, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for the invitation, Ron. It's great to be in conversation with you.
1: Yes, and I'm, I'm delighted to have you. Um, I've listened to a number of your presentations, a number of your uh, um, with other facilitators, um, and uh, a lot of them have focused on social isolation. What particularly struck me about you is that you've elevated the conversation and broadened it to talk about social health, which I think is a real is really a third dimension that really uh, is gaining traction, but requires a lot more talk about. So um, we're going to talk about that mostly today. Uh, but before we start, though, I just wanted to give you a few, a few minutes to um, you know tell our audience a little bit about yourself, because I find my guests have interesting journeys and are as interesting as the content of the shows. So just tell us a little bit about how you're thinking evolved. How did you, I know you were trained as a social scientist and your thinking as, as uh, you know, as evolved to talk to focus on social isolation and social health. So tell us a little bit about how you got there.
2: Sure. Thank you, Ron. So it really began in my childhood. I was the fourth uh, child, the last child of four siblings mm. and I think that made me an observer. I was always watching fellow kids on the playground and observing how people were interacting with each other at school, at home, uh, in the different extracurriculars that I did. And that was always really interesting to me, but I didn't have the language necessarily to describe what it was that I was seeing. I was just constantly watching and empathizing and observing. And there were a few defining moments that kind of bridged me from that point to where I am today. Mm -hmm. One was that when I went away to college, I went to university in Canada, which is where I was born and raised. I went in with every intention of studying political science and becoming a journalist or news broadcaster. And in my first year, one of the first classes I enrolled in was psychology 101, taking Mm -hmm. a general course. And I vividly remember sitting in an auditorium with a few hundred other students listening for the first time to the exact language and terminology that described all the things that I had been observing about human interaction and human connection Mm. over the years. And I was completely gripped. I was enthralled by it so much so that I believe that very day I went to the admissions office and said, I need to change my major. I am not going to study political science I'm going to study social science because this is fascinating and, and this is what really calls with me calls to me so another defining moment was a couple years later when i actually decided to take a gap year halfway through my degree which was a bit untraditional non-traditional mm-hmm. um and during that year the first thing that i did was go spend six months studying method acting uh, mm. in in France. And method acting is a very intense style and approach to acting, to theater and to, to screenplay. Yeah. And it's a wonderful way of exploring human connection and identity and relationships from a very embodied approach, right? You're you're learning the emotions of your character and you're relating to other characters through this lens of empathy and you're you're making it your own. So that was a fascinating experience in and of itself. But while I was there studying method acting, I picked up this book just completely by chance in a bookstore. I was walking through the streets of Paris one day, came across this little bookstore, ran in and found a book on happiness by an author, uh, actually a Buddhist monk, a uh, mm-hmm. former scientist named Mathieu Ricard. And he, in this book, he described meditation and he described the field of positive psychology and other things to do with the science of happiness. And this was all new to me. And I, again, just couldn't believe that there was terminology and research around these ideas that I had been so drawn to quite naturally. So as a result of picking up that book, I then... Continuing my gap year, went and spent a month in a Buddhist monastery in Nepal studying meditation and, and mindfulness. And then from there, I went to the University of Pennsylvania to the Positive Psychology Center and convinced them to let me do research with them for the summer and then on an ongoing basis from there. And there, again, once again, it was all about exploring the science of empathy and kindness and relationships and all these different qualities that confer happiness and confer health. And that, that was really where it began. From mm-hmm. there, my career kind of followed that, thre- that theme in different ways. I started um, after graduating, studying, doing research on mental health. I continued to do research on positive psychology as well. And I became really interested in how to translate the research insights into something useful for everyday people who mm-hmm. weren't reading scientific journals. Right, right. <laughs> and so, uh, fresh out of college, I, I developed an app and a campaign, um, all all about taking scientific research insights about human connection and relationships. And translating them into engaging content and fun activities that people could try in their everyday lives to actually deepen their relationships and, yeah. and be happier and healthier through that. And and since then my career has has led me in all different ways, but it, it was around 2016 or 2017 when I started hearing a lot about social isolation and loneliness mm-hmm. in the news. I was seeing more research articles about it, I've seen headlines, and I thought, well, that's really interesting because that's kind of the opposite of what I had started looking at, right? Mm -hmm. I had looked at human connection and how we can deepen relationships. And here was this very real societal need around people feeling disconnected and and not having the relationships that they wanted. And I was very, very intrigued in that. I started hosting events, getting involved with nonprofits, doing all kinds of work around loneliness. And ultimately decided to leave my wonderful job and career and life in San Francisco, working in Silicon Valley at Google's healthcare company, yeah. to go across <laughs> the country and go back to back to school. Did grad school. I did um, a master's in public health at the Harvard School of Public Health, focused on loneliness and thinking about how we can address that. Um, wow! And here we are. <laughs> here we are.
1: Wow. So <laughs> I love I love hearing these these stories and the journeys about people. Much more interesting to me to hear them hear you tell your story as opposed to reading your resume, you know, (laughs) which seems to me kind of you know static and doesn't really give a sense of the dynamism of people's lives and careers. And just sort of you know, for a lot of people, especially younger people in their twenties, it's like, well, what am I going to do? It's like,
2: (laughs) don't worry, (laughs) don't worry. Well, you can worry, but you
1: but don't think you're going to necessarily figure it out by the time you're twenty seven. You know, it's going to be an interesting career, and a lot of it is about both uh, intention and accident right Absolutely. you picked up that that you picked up that book while suddenly being method acting and you know you didn't plan that but it, it led to to uh, to an area that you really uh, have taken off from there so Absolutely. Um, so let's let's um uh, before we dive into social let's give us a little bit of background then to talk about so what is the state of socializing what is the date what is some of the data that, that we've come across Um, these days about what the, what the problem is, what the breadth of the problem is, where it is?
2: Sure. Well, it seems like even before the pandemic, and certainly now uh, that we've gone through the last couple of years, that a lot of people in the U.S. and in countries around the world feel disconnected. They are Mm -hmm. not getting the support, the emotional social support that they need. I think some of the data more recently is really interesting. So for example, earlier this year, just a few months ago, Gallup came out with their global emotions report. Mm -hmm. And in that they essentially interviewed nationally representative samples of people from around the world in 122 countries to really get a sense of how are the emotions (laughs) that people are experiencing around the world right now. And one of their key findings was that 330 million adults go two or more weeks without talking to a single friend or family wow. member another finding along that along that same note was that 20 percent of all adults worldwide don't have a single person they can count on for help wow. which is staggering if we really think about that for a moment that means one in five people who are listening right now don't ha- don't feel like they have anyone that, that they can count on Wow. that they can reach out to for support. So that's a really staggering thing to think about. It's a statistic, but when you actually think about the human experience of feeling lonely, feeling like there's no one who you can depend on, it's awful. Yeah, so that was that's looking at adults. If you also look at kids, um, the data is really interesting as well. So there was a recent study that looked at over a million teenagers in thirty seven countries around the world, and they followed mm-hmm. them from twenty from two thousand, rather to 2018, and they were looking specifically at school loneliness. So do kids feel lonely or connected at school? And it stayed roughly the same for the first decade, so from around 2000 to 2012. And then at that point, something shifted. And between 2012 to 2018, when they finished the study or or led to these reports, they found that nearly twice as many adults reported feeling lonely at school in 2018 as had in 2012. So it had doubled, which is, again, is, is really staggering. So I think some of the research is showing that this is very common. It's common among different age groups. Um, and that's, that's quite worrisome. So we need to do something about that.
1: Yeah. Um, now, I think that uh, some people have attributed this to, you know, social media, that basically is at the isolating um, aspect of it. Um, I think that some of it, too, is interesting that it seems to be um in um you know in in um, the early 20s it seems and, and so it seems to me there are high their peaks in the early 20s and then peaks again um you know in the in the 60s and some of my own just you know hypothesis is that these are also periods of transition you know where your you know students are, are 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 coming out of you know formal education years and years of formal education and then it's like Whoa! What? What now? You know, they're, so they're unstructured, and so the level of anxiety and stress increases, and and they don't have the social structures that were in place. And similarly, you know, when you are sort of finished with your career, or, or perhaps you know at least winding down, again you're retiring, and you don't have the same social structures that you had from you know your family and work, and so again you're kind of uh, dealing with anxieties and stresses. And, and you know a loss of connection.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's interesting. You're, ups, you're first of all, you're right that it's loneliness is most common among kind of Gen Z, so those aged around twelve to twenty five ish, and and then retirees, so older adults toward the end of their life. Uh, quite a few studies have shown that, um, but it's most common among Gen Z, by the way, that that younger age oh, group. Oh, interesting. And I think you're you're exactly right that life transitions is one of those risk factors, right? So think about um, starting high school for the first time and you're exposed to all these new different people, new peers, and you have to figure out your social standing. That can be quite a shock to the system. Or similarly, when you first retire and suddenly you no longer have the regular interaction of seeing your coworkers every day. Both of those moments can be quite profound. And there are others throughout the lifespan, but I think um, those age groups in particular are affected for these different reasons. So thinking about youth uh, even further, that's a time when you're forming your identity, you're figuring out who are the kinds of people who you do connect with and what you connect on. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're really figuring out your social role in the world. And so that's a really key stage of life to set the foundation for your social health moving forward. And then again, in our older years, our, our later years, that's a major transition again, where again your identity is kind of thrown into question. You no longer have work. A lot of your friends uh, may be, you know, sick or passing away. Your family may have moved away to different locations. So there's all this different identity, and that plays into this feeling of of loneliness and having to recalibrate your social life in very profound ways.
1: Right, and. And so there has been a lot of um, discussion. I don't know how much research, though, about social media, its influence and impact on loneliness. Certainly, you can sort of intuitively think about it. And, you know, especially younger people. But I mean, increasingly older people, too, they're you're on social media, but you're not really connecting in many ways. Um, And in a sense, it, it, it even seems that it disconnects people, you know, because you're you know, that you're seeing things that are maybe not true about people's level of happiness and interaction. So has there been much research in this area?
2: Yes, there's a lot of research. (laughs) And I would say that it's, it's still in the early stages. There's a lot of conflicting findings. Um, Some researchers are very much in the camp of social media is all bad and it's having nothing but a negative impact on our social and mental health Others are on the opposite end and saying, you know what, there's a lot of benefit to be found mm-hmm. here. I'm sort of falling somewhere in the middle, but I think we're really, really early in teasing out exactly all the ways that it's affecting people. I can tell you that last week I gave an in-person talk for a parent group for an education foundation in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the Q and A period at the end of my presentation was almost entirely devoted to people with questions and concerns about social media, about gaming, about internet use, and about technology overall, and the impact that that was having on their kids' social lives and and well being overall.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think too that um, you know I find um, in in talking with people and and my own communications that. uh, especially things like texting and emails, you know how much you know, people say things and you know some they're, they're not even you know nasty things or things like that. they're just they're lacking context and it's like you're, you're not talking to me you're, you're just giving words and you're missing a lot of what you know the, the connection is about. Um, so I encourage people <laughs> to minimize if you have complicated things to say, don't do it in texting or emails. You know, <laughs> completely <gonna>
2: agree. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, listen, we're gonna we're gonna take a short break, Casley. Um, uh, but for people out there, don't want, don't go anywhere. We'll be when we come back. We'll be talking much more with Casley Killam, a leading expert in social health. So, don't go away, folks. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
0: You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward.
1: Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Casley Killam, a leading expert in social health, what she calls the third and often overlooked area of health next to physical and mental health. Uh, Now, before we continue, I wanted to mention that you can find out a lot more about Casley by going to her websites, uh, casleykillam.com, right? Absolutely. Socialhealthlabs.com, right? Okay, Correct. we'll mention that again at the end of the show, but I just wanted to give people uh, some opportunity to, to write down where they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Um, so now let's dive into what social health is about. Uh, let's talk about how you define social health, Cass.
2: Sure, Absolutely. So I define social health as the dimension of well-being that comes from connection and community. So let me give some more context for kind of why I've come to that definition and Mm -hmm. that understanding. As I said earlier, I started my career um, partly at the University of Pennsylvania in the Positive Psychology Center, studying and being immersed in the world of positive psychology. That field essentially said, for those who aren't familiar Right now, we understand mental illness really well. Why aren't we also studying mental wellness? We know Mm -hmm. what goes wrong with people and how to help them. Why aren't we also studying what goes right with people and how to promote more of that? So it was really kind of a reframing of the conversation in the mental health space to say that we can't just look at what goes wrong. We also need to have an asset-focused lens looking at what we can strengthen in people. Mm -hmm. So things like happiness and meaning and purpose and connection and so on. I think we really need to do a similar reframing in the overall conversation about social isolation and loneliness. Those are very focused on deficits Mm -hmm. and there's power in reframing to look at assets and to look at prevention and proactive approaches. It what that does is it opens up a new world of possibilities for how you can take action and what you can actually do. So currently right now, we kind of think about physical health and mental health as the key pillars that make up our health overall, right? We think about exercising our bodies and eating nutritious foods. We think about going to therapy or practicing mindfulness, things like this to take care of both of our physical and mental health. Well, whereas physical health is about our bodies and mental health is about our minds, social health is about our relationships. Mm -hmm. The reason it's so important to elevate this concept alongside physical and mental health is that decades of research at this point have shown that relationships are one of, if not the biggest influence on our physical health, on our Mm -hmm. mental health, and on our longevity, right? There's fascinating data showing that People who have closer social relationships have a 50% increased likelihood of survival. As a, mor- as a predictor of mortality, relationships or the lack thereof are as impactful as things like smoking or obesity. And research shows that that relationship is causal. It's not just a correlation. It's actually causing These health outcomes long term. And then, aside from just living a long time, we know that relationships play a huge role in living well, right? So it's living long, but it's also living well during those years. So, again, relationships and the lack thereof are associated with depression, with heart disease, with cognitive decline if you're lacking in them. And so, at this point, we understand, at least in the research, that relationships are absolutely essential to our health and well-being. But we don't fully understand that as just general people out in the world. We're not taught that in school like we're taught about nutrition. We're not we're not embodying this and prioritizing it in the same way. And that's why I believe it's so important to frame it as social health to really help drive home this point that Social connection isn't just about your mental health. It's about so much more than that. And connection is a health habit, just like exercise and just like sleep. This is truly the underappreciated third pillar of health and well being. And I'm really passionate about helping people understand this and, and think about it in this new way, because I it has certainly impacted my life and, and has impacted the people of many, the lives of many people that I've worked with to, yeah. to reframe it in this way and, and start prioritizing social health.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great explanation of it. And I think really important. Um, when I was in, in graduate school, not far from you at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg school for communication. Uh, one of my professors, um, who was an anthropologist uh he talked about it he had a, a phrase i liked which was uh society is real which is the notion that you know we're not just a bunch of you know human beings who just you know like like marbles just you know bounce off each other and, 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 and you know accumulate as a society but that inherent in our humanness is social connection as a species. That's what's important. And it's an integral part of who we are. So it's not just like, okay, I'll I'll decide to talk to you now. That's part of what what keeps us healthy as a species.
2: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's core to our human nature to belong and to need to feel accepted and loved and share in experiences with other people. And if we lack that, it affects us emotionally, but it also affects our ability to survive and thrive as humans. So it's, yeah. it's truly vital.
1: Yeah, I think some of this came out with the pandemic uh, in which we were forced into isolation and it become, re- it, as, as you said before, this was an issue before the pandemic of loneliness and isolation, but it it the pandemic shown a spotlight on it and showed that in fact, and I guess you sort of see this with any kind of, you know, disaster or crisis where people get isolated, especially seniors, right? And this became a, became a a huge issue. Like, what do we do? People are, how do, how do people, you know, survive in these situations? So, you know, when you talked about sort of uh, prevention, you know, uh, how do, how do we intervene to prevent this disconnection when disasters will come up?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. This is, this is a topic that's become really important to me (laughs) over Mm -hmm. the last while. I wrote an article earlier this year for the American Society on Aging for Their Generations journal, looking at the fact that research during the pandemic found that communities where there were stronger social ties, so people were more connected within a given place, those communities had fewer cases of COVID-19 and fewer deaths due to COVID-19. So we were seeing a clear link between survival (laughs) during the pandemic and whether or not you felt connected to your community. Similarly, just last week, actually, I had a letter to the editor published in the New York Times drawing on that same theme of the fact that community resilience is tied to our social connections because what's come out of Hurricane Ian, which just passed through Florida and has affected many people, one of the... Findings here was that there was a disproportionate number of deaths among older adults. Mm. And unfortunately, that has been true in just about every hurricane over the past 20 years. I mean, I was going through looking at headlines from many different hurricanes and seeing the same finding again and again. And I said, What is going on? Why are older adults disproportionately dying? And why aren't we doing something preventively to get ahead of this? This doesn't need to happen. And one of the common threads in all of those cases is isolation, right? Older adults are in their home alone. They don't have someone helping them. And that's the situation in which they pass away. So I think that for emergency preparedness and for community resilience, for future hurricanes, for future pandemics, for climate change, we need to be strengthening community connections and we need to be strengthening people's social health ahead of the time, right? Before we need it. Um, And that means investing in local connections. That means engaging people of all different ages to make sure that this is an intergenerational effort Mm -hmm. where people feel connected and feel like they have someone they can reach out to for help in times of need. Um, And that needs to be part of federal emergency plan, planning, as well as at the local level.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that it, it you need to kind of connect the dots in terms of how to to take care of our folks as they get older. And one of the things that um, uh, is, is increasingly what people are talking about is that how, how do we help people age in place where they want to be, when, where they're comfortable, where they're secure and safe. However, <laughs> they're often alone. And I think that's the thing that we need to think about is that when a lot of um, seniors get older, they want to stay in their homes, uh, but they lose the social connection. And how do you maintain that uh, while, well, you know, enabling them to age where they want to be and and age in their community, but it can be a hazard if, if they're, if they're, if they're alone. And Mm -hmm. there, I think the figures are something like, you know, about a third of um, older Americans uh, do age alone. So it's, it's a sizable portion of our population absolutely Um, yeah yeah so that let's talk about you know going from there uh, so part of what you talk about too um about you know the, the community is making healthy places as you call them um so you know how you know there are certain structural issues you know about our built environment that are related to social health so talk about that a bit
2: sure absolutely so i think at the most fundamental level where we work where we live, where we play, those physical spaces that we occupy in our everyday life are influencing our social health, whether or not we're aware of it and whether or not we're intentional about it. And so while I was doing my master's and graduate work, um, I co-authored a textbook chapter with Ichiro Kawachi, who's a wonderful researcher and faculty member at the Harvard School of Public Health who's done seminal work in social capital, which is the Mm -hmm. idea of the resources that you have access to as a result of your social network. And so we wrote a textbook chapter about how the built environment, which is a fancy term for the physical places around us, Mm -hmm. how that can affect our social relationships and therefore our social capital and our social health. And it's really interesting because there's actually quite a bit of research on this. So there's certain features that we can design into the spaces that we occupy that help increase the chances that you're going to connect with other people. One is mixed use development. So if a Mm -hmm. place integrates both where people live and work and and shop and things like that into one place, green spaces is another important thing. Because if you think about it, a park is a great place to gather with friends or neighbors. Third spaces, which is a term for places like community centers or libraries or cafes that are essentially gathering spots in our community that are accessible to people. And also things like public transportation, right? You can't connect with other people in your, in your community if you can't even get to them. Um, so those were a few examples of, of the features that we consistently found um, to be helpful for social health. And then there's also features that are not helpful, right? So things like high density, ironically, the the more people in a bustling city, the actually the the more likely you are to feel alone, which is really interesting. Mm. And I think something happens there where the social norms change when you're just around each other all the time. You don't have to say hello or smile or, or engage in eye contact. Whereas if you're in a small town, you're more likely to do that because it would be weird not to say hello to the one other person walking down the street. Um, And also things like whether a city or place is more favorable to vehicles or to pedestrians, right? Mm -hmm. So things like that, we can begin to see how the choices that city planners and architects and designers are making in the places that we occupy every day are influencing our social connections and then in turn our health. So I, I think it's such a fascinating area and there are quite a few designers and architects and people like that who are conscious of this and who are taking action to exactly to design spaces that allow us to connect in more meaningful ways
1: yeah that's great uh when i i I hear what you're saying i think these are fantastic points and i think that um uh certainly uh when i walk in the streets of manhattan and and, so it's great that we're walking more these days for exercise purposes but there there does seem to be um uh, certain tipping points in density where it's just like you're just overwhelmed by people and you're just trying to literally navigate past people um so i think that there's um there is something to what i just i guess in terms of uh uh they talk about transportation uh, the notion of uh traffic calming and I think that's true of pedestrian traffic. You know, you, we need to find ways to to calm down and slow down so that we can connect. And the other aspect I think that that's, uh, struck me is that, you know, we're working uh, counter to trends uh, 50 years ago, where the in terms of development, there was a very um, concerted uh, focus on separating things. The zoning separated. Retail went here. Housing went here. A commercial went here, Industrial went here. don't don't mix them up, you know. and I think that that's something that we've changed in terms of recognizing the the sort of the ecological nature of a community. And it's what I sort of I call the the shift from a technological perspective of specialization to an ecological one, which really focuses on relationships and, and you know interrelationships between us and our environment. And, and that's been a so an interesting for me uh, um, you know byproduct of the green movement you know
2: that's so interesting i I love that framing of of from technological to ecological and I think we're learning right as as a society as as people we're learning and this is part of the process we tested out separating all those all those places at first and we've realized that maybe it doesn't it, it has some of these unintended side effects. And so now we can iterate on that. And I think having kind of a mindset of curiosity and openness to experiment and learn from things like that, and then take those learnings into the places we design in the future. That's great. And, and we have to have that attitude because we're not going to get it right from the get go. <laughs> and clearly we've made some mistakes because people are very lonely.
1: So. Yeah, yeah. Uh- you you hit the nail on the head. You need to take some risks. Like, well, we, that's the way we always did it. Well, okay. (laughs) And how, well, did it work? So I think it's, it it takes a bit of a risk, but I think, I think we're ready. (laughs) Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. I I think, you know, once there is the, um, you reach a tipping point um, and uh, sometimes uh, one of the things I, I talk about is, well, people don't like change. Okay. So when do they change? And one of my rule of thumb is they change when the pain of not changing exceeds mm. the fear of change, mm-hmm. <laughs> of taking that risk. And I think that the aspect of loneliness, I think, has reached this thr- this threshold now that we're saying, well, wait, wait a minute, this is a serious problem.
2: And I it's affecting so us in
1: many ways. Yeah,
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, as horrible as it was, the pandemic has been An amazing forcing function for exactly Mm -hmm. that. It's caused a reckoning where we do realize that our relationships matter and that we don't feel good when we're alone and separated from one another and forced to be apart. And so if there's one good that can come from the horrific happenings of the past couple of years, I think it's that. It's that a lot of people now are saying, okay, my friendships, my family, that needs to be a priority in my life because it matters for much more than just me feeling good on a day-to-day it it has a profound impact on my life and so moving forward i'm gonna i'm gonna put that into practice
1: yeah i think you're exactly right um so um we we, we're moving quickly here and we're coming up to another break uh but i i don't want people to um to go anywhere because we have one more terrific segment coming up with casley killam um and uh uh, so we'll be talking more about social health, and we're going to be talking about um, some of the programs that she's involved with, some of the terrific events, and also what we can do on a day-to-day basis to uh, improve our social health individually for each of us. So folks, uh, don't go away. When we come back, we'll be talking much more with Casley Killam on social health.
0: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. now back to 45
1: Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Casley Killam, uh, an expert in social health. And before the break, we were talking about um, how we can make healthy places uh, to increase our social health. Um, cassie has been involved in, in a lot of very interesting uh, programs and collaborations. So I wanted to ask her a bit about one that was particularly um, significant called Connect Plus Conversations, a collaboration Uh, with uh, with her uh, social health labs and the foundation for social connection
2: absolutely i'm happy to share more about it so this was a series that i co-launched back in 2021 and it went through earlier this year and we convened 26 experts and over 2500 community members from 55 countries in the end which was absolutely incredible i couldn't believe that many people tuned into the sessions from around the world, which I think speaks to the the fact that there's great interest in this topic. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the series was meant to explore solutions for loneliness and opportunities to to foster connection and social Mm -hmm. health through the lens of different sectors. So through technology, through healthcare, through government, through education, and so on. And this idea was really born out of, again, my my graduate work. I remember sitting in a lecture one day uh, in Boston and learning about the social ecological model. This is a way of thinking about public health prevention in kind of a systematic way. So, if you take, as an example, smoking cigarettes, right? Public health professionals a long time ago had figured out that smoking was very bad for you but the public the general public didn't yet know that and so there's kind of a systematic way of thinking about how to let the public know that this is bad for them and change their behavior so that they stop smoking so much right there's all the way from the policy level at the very top by you know taxing cigarette purchases and making it illegal to smoke indoors all the way down through communities through institutions through our interpersonal relationships, all the way down to the individual level. So an example of the individual level would be education, right? doing a campaign to inform people about how detrimental smoking is for their health. And so by taking action at all those different levels and pulling all those different levers, they significantly changed the landscape of smoking cigarettes in the Mm -hmm. United States and other countries. Mm -hmm. And we were able to really prevent that behavior and, and therefore prevent a lot of illness and a lot of deaths. So I remember sitting in lecture during my graduate studies and thinking about how we could apply that same model to the question of loneliness and to Mm -hmm. to the issue of loneliness and think about all the different levels and ways that we can intervene to help people understand the harm of of feeling disconnected and also the benefits of feeling connected and, and nurturing their relationships and so what that led me to was was thinking about all these different sectors you know in government in education in our individual lives as family members as friends as neighbors what are all the different opportunities for us to take action and make social health a priority so that was kind of the guiding principle behind this series um, and as a result we we published a report called creating the conditions for social well-being where we summarized the different recommendations. We summarized a lot of the ideas that came out of those conversations and also linked to many different resources. So if someone has a particular interest in one of those sectors, they could dive in a lot more deeply. So we published that earlier this year. It's available for free um, for download on our website at socialhealthlabs.com.
1: Right, that's what I recall that. So people, if they go to uh, socialhealthlabs.com, you can click and get a copy of the report. Yeah, exactly. Great, great. Yes. So there are lots of bigger things we can do. So what about some of the smaller things we can do? Because that, that's something that that you've been involved with, that, that I suppose you call it the micro level, but things that can be done at a neighborhood level or just we as individuals can do to increase our, the strength of our social health.
2: Yeah, well, the good news is there's so much you can do <laughs> as, cool. as an individual. And I think one thing about thinking about this Through the lens of social health is that it's very empowering there's a lot that Mm -hmm. we can do just like you can exercise and eat healthy foods to take care of your physical health there's a lot that you can do to take care of your social health the first step that i would recommend to people is to actually prioritize it right Mm -hmm. i think oftentimes the first thing to go when we get busy or when, you know, life takes over is con- connection, right? It's time with family. It's time with friends. That's often the first thing on the chopping block. We prioritize work um, and, you know, taxes and all the different responsibilities that we have to, to do. Um, so first step is, is really being intentional about making social health a priority in your life. A second suggestion that I would make for folks um, is taking really small steps because it doesn't have to be a dramatic lifestyle change to be more socially healthy. It can actually be quite simple. So one example is from a study that was published last year um, where researchers did an experiment with users on the platform Nextdoor, which is an app for kind of neighborhood um, connection. They invited users in a few different countries to do simple acts of kindness for their neighbors over a four week period, you know, so things like saying hello, striking up conversation, maybe bringing someone groceries, maybe participating in a neighborhood cleanup, things like that to kind of be more engaged with neighbors. They found that at the start of the study, one in 10 participants felt lonely. And at the end of that study, four weeks later, one in 20 did. So they wow. saw a significant decrease in, in people's experience of loneliness. They felt more connected to their communities. And those were relatively simple things that you could do, you know, once a week, just to be a little more friendly and a little more participatory in your neighborhood. A second example of, of a simple step is a quick phone call so there was a a study i loved i believe this was also last year where they had people talk on the phone for about 10 minutes a few times a week and just that just talking on the phone for 10 minutes a few times a week significantly lowered people's levels of loneliness as well as their levels of depression and anxiety so again hopefully we can all carve out 10 minutes every now and then a few times a week to call up a friend or family member and engage in that way. And the data tells us that that can actually have measurable impacts on our our social well-being. And then a final kind of suggestion for what we can do as as individuals is to take action wherever you are. (laughs) So that could be in your, your physical neighborhood, it could be in your workplace, right? I think teachers have an incredible opportunity to make social health a priority in their classrooms, right? And to teach students how to get along with each other, to empathize, Um, teachers can structure schoolwork in a way that's more collaborative um, and help students to to make new friendships with with new people. Similarly, managers uh, at any organization are well-positioned to do things like create psychological safety so that people can feel a better sense of belonging in the workplace or to reward employees who are supportive and collaborative team members and go out of their way to, to be there for each other. Um, and similarly, you know, we, we could go through any different sector and think about how you as an individual, as a leader, as a neighbor, as a friend can do something simple um, and just start seeing the world through this lens of, Oh, it, it matters that these connections, these conversations that I'm having, the way that I show up for other people uh, has a really, important impact on my health, on their health and on our society as, as a whole.
1: Yeah, I think I, you're right that, uh, there are small things we can do. And it's often, it's the small things that have an outsized impact. And even when I, I do try to make a point when I, you know, I'm, I'll go to a store, uh, and I'm doing something with, a the, cashier or whoever, to saying, how are you doing? <laughs> How's it going today? um and it's just something that's that says you know more than how much does this cost you know yeah um and i think that that's it is uh i think you you've got um um you know um a very good uh handle on this uh and so um we're gonna have to leave it there unfortunately though well, oh, i know <laughs> it's, it's gone fast and i appreciate it i just wanted to uh let people know um, one more time if they want to reach you. Uh, how do they get in touch with you?
2: Sure thing. So the best way is to go to my website kasleykillam.com. That's K-A-S-L-E-Y K-I-L-L-A-M at gmail.com or at um, no, not my Gmail <laughs> At, dot com. That's my website. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's the best way there. You can sign up for my newsletter. You can get in touch with me, email me directly. Um, you can follow me on social media and you can read more of my articles, learn about the work that I'm doing. So yeah, that, that's the best way.
1: <laughs> you've got i I've signed up for your newsletter. It's a terrific newsletter. So I Thank encourage you. people to sign up. <laughs> uh, and so folks, uh, once again, uh, Be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Mary Python, uh, clinical psychologist and bestselling author of 11 books, including Reviving Ophelia, Women Roaring North, uh, and uh, her latest uh, Life in Light, Meditations on Impermanence. Uh, So uh, until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward.